Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Don Jones. Don is a leading expert on Microsoft's business technology platform and a popular speaker at technology conferences, and he has received Microsoft's Most Valuable Professional Award since 2003. He co-founded the DevOps Collective and PowerShell.org, and is currently a curriculum director for Pluralsight, which offers online video training courses. Don is a prolific author who has written over 40 books, including PowerShell In-Depth and Learn Windows PowerShell in a Month of Lunches. Recently, he published the first of um, his first book on LeanPub, I think, um, the DSC book, Second Edition. His book is focused on the topic of Desired State Configuration, or DSC, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. You can follow Don on Twitter at ConcentratedDon, and he blogs at DonJones.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Don's career, his professional interests, his book, and his experience self-publishing an in-progress book on LeanPub. So thank you, Don, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Great. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, I've read a little bit about your story on your blog, um, and I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about how your career got started and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so I, uh, I was working for a company called Electronics Boutique, which has since been purchased by GameStop. They're a, a video game retailer, and that was my first IT job. Uh, so I worked in one of the stores for a while and, and got it, wound up with a job at the home office in uh, IT. It was an AS400 operator, um, but I'd always kind of had a, a programming hobby background, and, and so it wasn't too long before I was doing a lot more than just helping run the AS400. Um, and from there, I, I've worked at companies like Bell Atlantic. I've worked for Microsoft uh, Training Partners. Uh, I have been independent. I was independent for about 12 or 13 years, I guess. Uh, and I did a lot of consulting and, and a lot of you know work for different clients, all kinds of different stuff. Uh, and a lot of writing. That's that's I think when I I did probably the most the most writing, uh, particularly in the long form published books. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, I took a job as a curriculum director with Pluralsight, uh, which kind of gives me an opportunity to reach out a little bit further than myself and and help work on uh, large projects and help other people become you know better trainers and 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 reach people. Uh, so it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, I read uh, on your blog that you. Your first job was um, uh, working on military jets. That you were a, yeah. a military jet um, uh, mechanic, I suppose. Is that is that right? Yeah. So I I worked. I was a civilian employee for the Department of the Navy, uh, and for their depot level maintenance, which is when they they pull the airplane all the way apart to nuts and bolts and rework the whole thing. Uh, the Navy guys don't do it just because it takes so long. But by, by the time you'd finish it, it, your enlistment is up and you could get out. So I was a, a four year apprentice. Um, and worked on A6s and F14s. Um, this is going to be a little bit left field, but I was, it just occurred to me when I read that. Um, as someone who used to work on those jets, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about the F-15, um, this controversial fighter jet that's been developed over the past few years and has run into so many hurdles, but may have so the, jumped the, the last the, one recently. The 15 has actually been in service for a long time. That's, that's an Air Force aircraft, mm. um, and it's, it's kind of a contemporary of the 14 I worked on. Um, the, I, I, I forget what the number is. I know that the, I think it's the F 32 or something like that. That's the one that they were going to develop one airplane for all four forces. Um, and I don't know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. It's, it's a tall order. It's tough to do that. You know, you're, you're taking an aircraft that the, the air force wants to be able to fly and do their missions, which is great. And they have a lot of things. When they design an aircraft, they want to, you know, be able to change an engine in 20 minutes. And they have all these metrics for for how the airplane has to be serviceable, which is hugely important to their mission. 
The Navy, on the other hand, basically wants it to be able to crash land on a floating postage stamp in the middle of the ocean, which is a totally different aircraft. Um, you know, bigger landing gear, much bigger thing. Maintenance is often harder. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see if they can pull that off. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. It's, uh, when you say a postage stamp, um, um, uh, I assume you're referring to the aircraft carrier, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, did you ever, um, have an opportunity to go on one of those? Yeah, not for anything, you know, where they were in combat or anything like that. But as part of our apprenticeship, we got to go take a tour. Uh, I think it was the John F. Kennedy that we got to go on to and, and just kind of see the airplanes that we were working on in, in real life in operation. Oh, that's just really fascinating to me. Um, yeah, they're amazing machines. <laughs> yeah, uh, two, two, um, two uh, nuclear generators on some of the bigger ones. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, they're, they're powered for like um, 50 years or something like that? Oh yeah, yeah. They can they can go forever. I mean, they they go out to sea for incredible lengths of time with, with you know their their fleet that that travels with them. Six months, eight months is is pretty common. Mm -hmm. um, another another sort of totally from another direction question. Um, you write on your blog about how you became attached to being independently employed, um, in spite of the uncertainty and the risk. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it was was like. Um, to have that kind of independence, um, I, I assume you have quite a bit under plural site now as well. Um, but I'm just I'm curious about that dynamic about sort of being an independent consultant versus being an employee. It's it's tough. I mean, you know, the upsides are when you want to take off, you take off. Um, so if if you've got nothing going on on a random Tuesday afternoon and you want to go see a movie, you're free to do that. You don't have to hang out and just put in your your hours at the desk. Um, so there's a lot of upsides. Uh, if you work really, really hard and you take on a lot of work and you get it done well, you get to keep all that money. So it's it's not like working for the man where you can really you know bust your butt and not necessarily come out any further ahead. Um, on the other hand, you're the only one making the money. So you're kind of constantly worried about, am I getting today's job done? Am I marketing for tomorrow's job? Am I making sure I'm lining stuff up? You have to kind of get used to when you're your valleys and your peaks are so that, you know, maybe you have to pile on really hard at a certain time of year to cover a traditional slump at another time of year. And you have to be able to really manage your money. Um, it's not like living paycheck to paycheck where you can spend this one because you know, there's going to be another one just like it in a couple of weeks. That's, that's rarely the case. Uh, the money tended to flow very, very, very unevenly. And so you have to really plan things out. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you, you kind of have to come to accept that you can't ever be more than you are. So if you can produce a certain amount, you can get paid a certain amount for that, then that's probably all you're ever going to be able to do. You can, you know, optimize, create some efficiencies here and there a little bit, but only to a point. Um, so if, if you're the type of person who really wants to work on big stuff, bigger than one person can do, you wind up being with a company and a team. Uh, and I've, I've enjoyed both. Um, the environment at Pluralsight really kind of sets everybody up to be their own little entrepreneur. And so you kind of get that impact of working for a large team, but you still get to call the own shots within whatever it is you've been trusted with. Um, and that, that really, really fits my personality well. So it's, it's been a good match. And as a curriculum director at Pluralsight, what is it, what is it that you do? It sounds interesting. So we have, we have several curriculum directors that own different branches of our library. Uh, I'm in charge of the stuff that applies to the IT operations crowd. So Windows Server, SharePoint Server, Linux servers, Windows clients, all that type of stuff. Not software development. That's another whole chunk. And then we have another whole chunk that's uh, creative stuff. Your, your CAD CAM software, your Adobe software, stuff like that. 
So uh, my job is to do research, plan out our curriculum, decide what courses it is we should have either to meet specific customer needs or to find out uh, or, or to make sure that we're, we're leading the customer, you know, that we're going to have the right training that they're about to need and maybe they don't realize they need yet. And then I work with uh, our acquisitions editors to recruit authors to produce those courses. I work with our authors to get the proposals together and get the courses outlined. Uh, and I work with our editorial and production teams to make sure that the, the courses eventually do get done and published in, in the right sequence. So it's a kind of a big coordination job, but I really, really enjoy instructional design. So it, it kind of fits into a little hobby thing that I've, I've touched in on and off again for years. Speaking of instructional design, um, one of the um, topics that often comes up in the interviews I do with lean pub authors is the, um, and partly because I bring it up, um, is, is, uh, the, uh, not exact, not necessarily the tension, but the kind of relationship between the burgeoning, uh, field of online training and learning and more conventional ways of learning and training, like actually enrolling in a college or a university and going there and taking courses. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Do you, do you see, for example, do you see online training replacing entirely some university degrees? I'd like it to. Okay. Um, particularly in the IT field and particularly because I'm an American and, and, and we have a you know, a particular situation and, and worldview around it. Um, I don't have a degree. As I mentioned, I graduated from an apprenticeship, so it was very vocational. I think there are colleges out there that do a fantastic job of preparing people for a job. Uh, in the U.S., it tends to be community colleges and vocational schools. And they're very, they're very, they're very lean. They're very agile. They're able to update their curriculum fairly frequently to kind of keep pace with, with what the market demands. And a lot of times they're only after you for a couple of years. You're after an associate's degree or something like that. And a lot of employers for, for entry-level jobs, that's what they want. But we have a situation where you know, kids are going and spending $30,000, $45,000 a year for a four-year degree. And they, they come out insanely in debt. You know, they're, they're a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt. And they have a degree that is essentially useless in the marketplace, at least in the IT field. Um, they, no one cares about it. Okay, great. You've got a degree. That means you essentially know nothing other than how to sit in a classroom for four years. Well, that's kind of an expensive way to be taught how to sit down for four years. Um, and it affects our economy. It affects it deeply. Uh, we have a lot of millennials who, who are in that situation who are not buying homes because they're already under a crushing amount of debt. And the last thing they want to do is take on another hundred grand on a mortgage. And, you know, home buying is one of the things that, that deeply drives the fundamental core of our economy. And so you, you create this whole situation where everybody feels like they have a degree because everybody has a degree. It's not special anymore. So you spent all this money getting something that's not special whatsoever. It doesn't differentiate you in the job marketplace. And in the process of doing that, you know, we're, we're creating this horrible economic black hole that is eventually going to have to collapse in on itself. So I would really like to see um, online training, whatever other types of training – particularly for jobs, just completely replace that. Uh, at the DevOps Collective, we put together an educational program that was designed to help someone get the skills they need to get an entry-level job, say, on a help desk in a common IT organization. Now, that's a job that in the U.S. pays thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year. If you're 19, 20 years old, that is kick-butt money for a first job. And IT tends to promote from within. So once you've got that job, you're going to learn on the job, and you're going to get a $60,000 job, an $80,000 job, and eventually more. So 
you know, it's it, it's an inexpensive program that someone can run themselves through. We don't run it. We just kind of point to where you can go get it yourself, and we've laid out the curriculum. And I I think over time, I, I hope that that counselors at schools and and career advisors will start to direct kids to some of these other options. Um, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, yes, please go to a lot of school, go to tons of school. Um, but if you want to be an IT guy, it's not just it's just not necessary. And I, I hate that we shove it down kids' throats. And for those who aren't um, familiar with the reasons, what what reason what do you think the reasons are that university education has become so expensive in the United States? Because they can. Uh, it's it's we live in a market economy, and if people are willing to go take a loan for forty five grand, and other people are willing to loan that money, then that's how much the universities are going to charge. I mean, they're going to literally charge as much as they can get away with, particularly the private schools and particularly the private career colleges, you know, the universities of Phoenix and things like that. The public schools, the in-state schools, especially ones that, that, you know, where you can get your in-state tuition financially, much better deal, community colleges. The problem is those guys just, they're academia. They're, they're designed to change at the rate of, you know, physics, which rarely changes. And they can't keep up with really fast, quick changing dynamic fields like IT so, I mean, literally by the time you, you start, even if they have a brand new curriculum for you on, on your, your freshman year, by the time you graduate, it's useless. It, it's, it's all change. And what they haven't done is taught you how to keep up. Um, and so it, it, it just doesn't work out so well. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, one thing I've, I've found, a lot of the people that I, that I interview um, who are lean pub authors are in tech in some way or another. And I would say you know, probably at most half of the people I interview uh, studied in school uh, yeah. what they ended up doing eventually yeah. in tech. Um, and it seems that people have all sorts of paths to, to where they, to where they end up and uh, formal training and what they end up doing is not, doesn't really correlate. Um, no, it doesn't seem to. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, AR um, and what you think it, the possibilities are in that space, uh, augmented reality um, uh, for online training? It's hard to tell. Uh, it's, it's still something people are playing with. I, I look at the first, you know, video training that, that was available 10 years ago, eight years ago, and you look at where we are now. And back then it, it, it just wasn't there. Uh, and, and it, you know, everybody said this is going to be the new wave and the new wave. And eventually it, it, it was, but it took it a really long time, almost a decade. And, People's, people's learning preferences and how your brain learns are really, really fickle. And the, the new shiny is not necessarily going to actually work for people's brains. I mean, there's still tons of people out there, thank God, who buy books. Uh, they don't want to go to a class because they don't learn well that way. They want to be able to sit, read, play with it, come back to it, and a book works for them. There's other people who just hate to read books. So I, I, I look at new you know training modalities like that, and, and I worry a lot less about is it cool or, you know, can we do it? And I worry a lot more about how does this actually serve someone's learning needs? How does it, how does it fit the way someone's brain is going to be put together? Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of fields, the aircraft mechanic, where it would be fantastic to be able to sit down with a giant visor on your head and actually work on a thing in virtual space. Um, there's probably a lot of, of mechanical, physical fields like that. You get into something like software coding, you could already sit down and do that right in front of you. You don't necessarily need a, a honking thing on your head. So it, 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 if it's applied well into the right spaces, like everything else, the right tool for the right job, um, I'm sure there's probably a good future for it. I've seen um, one or two examples online um, where 
it seems like people are using AR to kind of replace training um, where essentially what you do is like you see an, an oh, you're looking through these glasses with an overlay of video uh, or, you know, design of some kind. And it's kind of just like telling you like a little arrow, like pointing at the distributor cap, like pull this up, right? right? And then, and then it'll point to your left and say, in your toolbox, there's another distributor cap, pick it up, you know, put it here. Um, have you have you come across anything along those yeah, lines? Yeah, and I, I, I think it highlights the difference between training and teaching. Um, and I, I hate the word training um, mm. as, it, as applies to anything I try and do. Mm. Um, trainers are for dolphins and dogs. And if, if all you're doing is teaching someone to, to perform a repetitive set of tasks, then that's fine. Um, if you are the person being trained to do that and it literally is as easy as someone saying, take the distributor cap and put it here, you have to wonder how long it's going to be before we just have a robot to do that and then we don't need you anymore. Teaching, on the other hand, is much, much higher level. It's synthesis. It's application. It's helping people change the way they think so that as a problem comes up, their brain is is geared to deal with that problem. Um, and and again, the modality doesn't matter there. So long as you're presenting the information in a way that makes sense to someone, but it's always going to be really difficult to do that with any kind of rote, computer-based, you know, just just simulation type thing because a simulation can't do anything really but train you. Um, it might be a great supplement to teaching, but teaching is always still going to be a, a, a uniquely human endeavor. And you, you spoke earlier, I think, about course design. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. When you're when you're when when you're designing a course, are you are you thinking about a certain type of student or how to accommodate multiple types of students at the same time? Um, we start with an audience design. Um, I think that's the most important thing. Uh, I view I view teaching as a story, uh, and you have to know where your, your your learner is is the hero in your story. They're the ones who are are going on whatever path it is you're taking them, and you've got to define exactly what that path starts as and exactly how that path ends. Who are they at the beginning, and who are they going to be at the end? And so long as you know that, you can then start structuring a path that has as few distractions, as few gullies, as few hills as possible, and try and, and anticipate where those hills are and kind of pre-smooth those out by presenting the material in a sequence that, that leads them nicely up a slope instead of running them into a cliff that you then have to climb them over. So I, I think knowing who your learner is, who you want them to be, um, having reasonable expectations, right? If you're trying to do a four-hour course, you can only do so much. And it might not be the last course they watch, but for this course, what's the beginning and what's the end? Uh, and so we spend a lot of, of time working with the authors at Pluralsight on that. It's something that um, I've done a lot in my books. Um, the Month of Lunches series that, that I created that Manning Publishing uh, runs, um, even in the, the DSC book I'm doing now, you know, even though it's, it's being produced roughly chapter at a time uh, is when I tend to release updates, I had a, a plan for that from the outset. Uh, I, I knew what the path was. Now, given that it's lean publishing, I might be able to go back later and I might be able to take the, the skeleton path that I created in the first path and then start filling in maybe some more examples, maybe covering other scenarios that are a little divergent. So I can go flesh that out and make it a little fatter, but I've still got that path from the beginning to the end. Yeah, I'd just, I'd just like to ask you one more question before moving on to talking about your book um, and, the way, and the way you're publishing it, um, which is uh, when you said, you said you know, that the, the learner or student is on a journey. Do you... Do you set that or do you, do you um, encourage the course authors to set that up yep. you know, it, and at the beginning? So like you sort of set the stage for what the journey is in the first. Yeah. And, and 
Given that that my audience is IT operations, we're a very pragmatic people. Uh, we just want to make it work so we can go home. And so I try to have every course start out with a very clear upfront motivation. Hey, you know how it sucks when this happens? Well, we're going to learn how to fix that. So that someone can immediately say, okay, great. I can relate to that. I know the situation I'm in. I can start to impute some of the problems that are around the edges of this. And so I can, I can get a feel for where we're going just with that one sentence. Uh, and yeah, that sets the stage for someone. That gives the learner an expectation. And the clearer you can make that, the more likely they are to be happy with the outcome. Yeah, that sounds really um, effective. Um, you know, putting people in a situation where you've communicated to them, here's where, you know, we want you to start and where we want you to end. Yeah. Um, so you're on a shared narrative. Um, uh, on the subject of your book, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what DSC is and who your intended audience is for the book. Yeah. So uh, desired state configuration is a part of uh, Windows management framework, which is what includes Windows PowerShell. So DSC actually builds on Windows PowerShell. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a high-level part of PowerShell. And its idea is if you've got a computer, maybe a server or a client computer, you tend to want it to be configured in a certain way. And the, the way we've approached that typically in the past is maybe we'll write a script so we don't have to manually configure the script server. When you set it up for that first time, you're going to provision it somehow. And you get it the way you like it, and then you put it into production, and then invariably it starts to change. And so organizations spend a ton of time, and there's, there's management frameworks, COBIT, ITIL, all these other things that, that create these huge processes around change management. So the idea is you put something in place, it works. How do we make sure it never, ever changes, ever? Uh, so that Because if we don't change it, then it should always keep working the same way. Desired state configuration is is designed to kind of flip that on its head, and and you you start with a a computer and human readable description of what you want the computer to look like, and then you hand that to the technology, and it builds the computer that way, and then it makes sure it stays that way over time. And if you change your mind, okay, well now we want the computer to look like this. You just change that document, and the technology goes in and 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 fixes it or alters it or or whatever else, and then maintains it in that state. So it's, it's really kind of not bleeding edge, but it's definitely at the leading edge of, of where IT operational management has been for a couple of years. Uh, and this is Microsoft's flavor of that. And how does it make sure things stay the same? It scans the machine um, every so often and checks every single thing that you've said you want to be true and makes sure that it is still true. And if it isn't, then it's got code underneath that, that remediates that and fixes it. Um, you said you mentioned already that you're you're uh, publishing the book in progress, and I wanted to ask you a few questions about your strategy around that. I think it's something yeah. that that other lean pub authors that would be would be interested, or potential lean pub authors too, would be interested in hearing about. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned before. I think you had a you had a pretty definite plan before you published oh, yeah. it the first time. Yeah, I have a very detailed outline down to like second and third level headings, uh, and that's pretty common for me when I write a book. Uh, and I kind of got in that habit for two reasons. One is that with a traditional book, once you hand a chapter off to the publisher, it's really kind of a pain in the neck and, and outside the process to change it. So you kind of have to know what the whole plan is. It's not like you can get to chapter 12 and go, oh, crap, I forgot to mention that back in chapter three. It's painful to go fix that. So I'm, I'm very used to this kind of top-down design approach. Um, so that made it a little bit easy to just kind of jump in and know what I was going to do. Uh, the difference is instead of releasing a chapter at a time to the publisher who then saves them all, um, I just publish it. Uh, and sometimes it's a little ugly. Sometimes there's an error or two. But I, I think people in the space now are comfortable 
Um, so long as they feel they have a way of reporting that to the author and they see progress. Um, and LeanPub obviously gives people, I, I've gotten emails from people and I said, hey, you know, there's a typo on page, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. I fixed that. And then in the next update, that just gets pulled in and, and now it's fixed. So did you give your email address to readers? No, not yet. Okay. Um, I, I need to set one up where I do that. Uh, and we're about 50% through the, the book's kind of initial pass. So I, I need to do that. Um, but I'm not that difficult to contact either. Most of the folks who are reading this know how to get me on Twitter or they can find me on powershell.org or through my website, donjones.com. So I, most of the folks reading it at this point have found the book because of me and they already know how to get hold of me. Right. And you enjoy the, those interactions with them. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's something a lot of our authors talk about. Some, some will actually put their email address in their introduction, um, and say, you know, email me, um, which we, we see as obviously a very good thing, but one of the things we're thinking about is trying to optimize that relationship. Um, would you prefer to be contacted like through LeanPub or something like that? Or do you prefer it the way yeah, you I think, it working? I think large scale, it's probably a little easier to have some, some bottleneck where everything can come through so that, cause obviously I've, I've got a job, I'm doing this in, in my, my spare time. Uh, and so it'd be kind of nice to have it in a queue that I could say, okay, you know, once a week, once a month, whatever, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start running through all this. And that creates a good expectation for people. And you can tell them, look, if you send something, don't expect a reply for this period of time, because I, I tend to process them in these batches. Um, so I kind of do that with my email organization right now, but it, it would be nice to have something in the platform. And I think it would give people a better perception that, that there is a feedback mechanism. You know, this is the person I bought the book from. This is the person who wrote the book and they're going to help me, you know, all talk to each other. And what about, um, uh, so actually, well, before I ask this next question, um, how much of your book had you written when you first published it? Uh, the first chapter. The first chapter. So is that about 10% yeah. or something like that? Probably less than that. It was, it was honestly the overview. It was probably 2000 words. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Were you, um, uh, trepidatious about that or was it just just came naturally from you to publish something so early no it i write really quickly um and i think the majority of, of the folks who are accustomed to my work um have a good expectation of of what it is and how quickly i i, I tend to produce so i i felt fairly comfortable doing that i mean we we didn't sell a ton of copies right away uh, it was one or two copies it was when i hit the 50 percent point and uh did I, I i think did a couple of things to make specific commitments to my productivity um, that the sales started to, to spike up a little bit, which really does help keep the project moving. When it comes to the project moving, this was the, the question I delayed. Um, what, uh, I was wondering if, if you would like to be able to show to readers uh, a sort of history of your progress somewhere on LeanPub. Would that be like, you know, I, I released the first chapter on this date. I released the second chapter on this date. Here, yeah, I don't here know, are the things that I updated when I or or added when I did that. Here are the things I corrected. Is a is a history of your. Yeah, that's probably that's probably a good idea. It, it would at least show show readers that you're serious about it. And this is a real thing. Uh, and if an author you know publishes a chapter and then vanishes for three months, then readers have you know reason to be trepidatious unless there was some commitment otherwise. So yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. It kind of um, makes you a little bit accountable to the audience, which is good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The, 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 one of the, what we're thinking about is sort of establishing that trust. Um, so someone, yeah. someone comes along and sees a book is 30% complete and maybe they're not so familiar with, you know, lean pub and this, the concept of publishing that we're trying to spread. And then if they can see, Oh, but this, but it's only 30% done, but it's like one chapter per week for the last three weeks. 
right. you know, that's pretty good, pretty good sign that I should trust that this author is going to complete what they're doing and that they have a plan. Um, I was wondering, uh, how did you, this is a big question for self-published authors. Um, how did you decide pricing for your book? Um, I've written a lot of traditionally published books. And so I, I, I know what a book of this length, and I, I've got a really good idea what the final length is going to be. I know what that's usually going to be priced at. And so that's kind of my, my target price. I'm actually not priced at that right now as we speak. Uh, I'm priced a little lower. I decided to start with kind of an early bird price to reward the people who, who jumped in early and, and kind of helped support the project initially. When I cross the 60, 75% point, I'll bump the price up to its final. And it'll be, it'll be a little bit cheaper than an, you know, an equivalent traditionally published paper book would be because uh, there's no paper costs. But I've always felt that the majority of the value in the book should be the material in the book, not the paper. Uh, not the copy editor, not 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 the things that really don't add a lot of value. So it, it should be about twenty percent less um, than than a traditional published book of the similar length. And um, why did you decide to publish this book on LeanPub rather than with uh, a sort of conventional publisher, which pretty clearly you you could have done if you'd chosen to. You've done it so many times in yeah. the past. Yeah, um, this technology, like a lot of them. Um, is extremely agile. It changes a lot and it changes fast. And there was, there's literally no upside to working with a traditional publishing model. Um, I can write a book. I mean, if I sit down and take the time, like if I took a sabbatical from work for a month, I can write a 300, 400 page book in a month. I write quick. And that would be fine, except then it's going to take two months to copy edit and two months to dev edit and another month for a tech editor to go through and then two months in layout. And then even though it took me a, a month, it's nine months to a year before the stupid thing gets out and now it's changed and now it's not good anymore. So I really started looking around. I mean, obviously there's, there's sites like Getbook uh, and Penflip, both of which I've used. PowerShell.org's free eBooks are, are dual published. We publish those on LeanPub and on, on Gitbook. Um, and I think Gitbook is is great for the model, but it's non-commercial. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of it is that there's no there's no storefront. They're just all open source books. That's fine for PowerShell.org. It's a nonprofit. It's a community organization. Not looking to sell those books. But this was something that if if I wanted to be able to maintain this over time, there needed to be a financial reason to do it. Because um, although I do enjoy writing and I like getting this stuff out there, if it's something I'm going to have to my, have my head in every month, I'm going to lose interest. Unless there's a, you know, if I can take my family out to dinner once or twice, that's a financial motive. So sure, that works. I, that keeps me going. Um, and, and LeanPub was really kind of the combination of those. Uh, it, it lets me treat the book a lot like an open source project, meaning well, it isn't open source, obviously, but it, it has a lot of the same characteristics in that I can make changes to it as often as I want to or, or as often as I need to, but it still puts that commercial end on it so that, that there is a, a financial you know, arrangement going on that keeps me interested. Your book is currently um, priced at uh, $39.99. Um, I should mention anyone, get the deal now um, if yeah. you're listening. Um, uh, and of course, you know, we don't do DRM uh, at LeanPub. Um, Correct. And so you're selling a, you know, $40 self-published DRM free book. Yep. Um, and we've actually got someone else, a guy named Nick, Nick Russo, who's selling his book for a suggested pr a minimum price of $200 and a suggested price of $300 right now. Um, so it's offering something of, a, you know, for a book, pretty high monetary value, uh, something that people could easily not pay anything for. Um, yeah. Is that, does that 
something that you think about or do you just not think not about anymore okay. no i mean I, there there's no first of all there's no such thing as drm um uh, i had one of my my first powershell books um some russian guy bought shaved the cover off of scanned and made a beautiful windows help file out of uh and that was online I have never ever written a, a printed book that wasn't pirated almost immediately. Any DRM can be stripped off really, really easily, and all it does is inconvenience your legitimate customers. Um, it makes it harder for the people who did pay you money to take value for what they got. So I'm not going to punish the people who are supporting it. M- my experience has been, at least with the audience I work with, that they're they're pretty pretty upright people, um, and if they find value in something, they'll pay for it. Now. My price, my, my minimum price is thirty nine ninety nine. I've had more than a few people pay sixty, seventy bucks for the book. So they're paying what they feel the value is. And if somebody's out there and they're working with this stuff and you know they're they're in a country where thirty nine ninety nine is is two months' salary and so they're gonna grab the thing pirated someplace, uh it's fine. Okay. You know, maybe they'll do well someday and um, maybe they'll take their appreciation and go to DevOps Collective and make a, a charitable donation to a nonprofit that's helping kids learn technology. So, you know, if that's their value, it's fine. My feeling is that it, it'll all kind of square itself out in the end. Uh, you don't write books to get rich. Uh, I, I've I've been doing this since 2001. There's there's reasons to write books beyond the money, and so long as there's enough of a financial thing to make it worth my time, uh, and so far there has been, then that's that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, but I think most people in the industry are accustomed to paying for something of value. Um, and, and I'll give you a really good example. Um, I mentioned the free eBooks on powershell.org. We put those on Gitbook, which is very useful, but a lot of people are, are blocked at work from accessing Gitbook. And one of the reasons we decided to also dual publish them to LeanPub was because we can set a minimum price of zero and let people pay for the book if they want to. And it becomes a charitable donation really. Uh, because we give the books for free already, 90% of the people who get the book from LeanPub pay for it. Maybe they're paying two bucks, maybe they're paying four bucks, but I, I think people are willing to pay for it if they find value. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, thanks for that. That was a great response. Um, uh, I agree. There's so much in there that we agree with and that it's, it's great for us to hear that we built that it can accommodate that. Um, our most, um, our best-selling book in terms of copies and revenue last year um, has a free minimum price. Um, yeah. It's just a fascinating thing to watch how, how our variable pricing model is, uh, is, is um, succeeding for authors in this way that w- they can offer the book for free and for money at the same time. And, mm-hmm. so, and so do both those things that you can do, that you can do as an author. Two, two of the big reasons to write, one is to gain an audience. Well, well, the main one is to get whatever your message is out there to people. Um, but one of the main advantages is to gain an audience and the other one is to potentially make some money. Um, and the idea that you can combine those two by making a free minimum price, but also having a suggested price that allows people to pay, uh, has turned out to be, um, very powerful. Um, uh, so was one of the reasons you chose to, uh, publish your book on LeanPub rather than with a conventional publisher. It was obviously sort of ease of production, but. Um, was it that freedom to set your own price and maybe play around with your pricing? Did that, was that part of the reason as well? Yeah, that was a factor. Um, and honestly, another factor is publishers, publishers just don't do much to, to help you sell books, but they keep the majority of it. 
Um, you know, most authors are getting 10, 12%, and that's not a lot. Uh, so you've got this massive machine that really, in a, in a lot of cases, doesn't add a lot of value. Now, I've been very happy with Manning. I think they're a great publisher, and, and for the Month of Lunches series, they're a great fit. But this is a, a niche technology. It's a very high-end technology. There's never going to be 5,000 copies of this sold. And it just it made sense that if I was going to do this, to do it on my own terms, I'm going to be responsible for bringing the most readers to this, that and word of mouth. Um, and so I don't see any reason why there should be a giant publishing machine skimming you know, 75% of the revenue off the top. Um, when I and my audience are the ones who are going to have to do most of the work on it. Um, are you intending to make a print version when it's nope. done done? Oh, okay. Nope. No, no. I mean, pe- people can get a PDF and print it if they want to, but right. I'm not planning to, to traditionally publish it. Great. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting, actually. I've just got to tell a little story I heard from my co-founder once. I think this was a LeanPub book, um, but you mentioned that uh, you had, you had um, it was, I was just reminded of this when you mentioned that it was someone from Russia who, who pirated your book once. And we had, had a story about a guy who published a book and then someone from Russia translated it and was selling it. Um, and so the, the original author, instead of getting mad and, you know, pointlessly um, and yep. trying to do something that, you know, you can't do about that, got in touch and said, hey, would you mind, would you like to translate my next book? Uh, and let's sell it together. And of course, the translator was like, of course, I'd love to do that. Um, and so it was interesting that something that people, uh, you know, segment of the the authorship community sometimes sees as a big threat, you know, other people can see as a potential new connection, um, building an audience for them. Yeah, and, and I've done similar things in the past, and, and I would do so again. I, I think you, you get a lot further creating opportunities for people than creating barriers. Oh, and I, I do have a, just about five more minutes too. So okay, okay, yeah. So just uh, one one more brief question. Um, uh, well, I've got you here. If there was one thing we could build for you, um, that would uh, help you, uh, what would that be? Or um, if there was one thing we could fix, what would that be? Gosh, I don't know. Um, it it's been working so well and so smoothly. I would say. Oh man, I don't even know. The, you know, the the one thing that I'm, I'm not doing in this book is any kind of professional copy editing, uh, and that's the one thing that I feel a little bit guilty about because it does put it on the audience to do that, and they're very patient with it, and I try to be very responsive to, you know, when they they point out errors. Um, but I'm not sure how I would collaborate with an author because I'm I'm using the Dropbox publishing method, so we basically just have a shared Dropbox. I'm not sure if I would just you know, how, how to loop an editor into that. Like if I was going to use an editor and kind of notch this up a bit, it, it's the one thing I feel a little bit guilty about that I wouldn't mind putting a little money into, but I worry about it just really slowing down the whole workflow. Um, I'd, I'd want workflow. Like I'd want to release a chapter to the editor, let the editor do their thing and then release that to the publishing queue. And the next time I hit publish, it grabs everything in that queue and makes a new version so that it's, there's a clean handoff back and forth, right? Can't have two, three people working in the same document at the same time. Okay, thanks. That's really that's a really great answer. We'll we'll think about that. Um, well, anyway, I know your time's about up, so uh, thanks very much for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Have a great day.